going to Deuteronomy chapter three. We're going to finish chapter three today. And uh, here's what I want you to know. The sermon this morning has a little bit of a different feel than the past three sermons in Deuteronomy. Uh, This morning, my message is going to be a little bit more devotional. I'm going to say it like that. Uh, the, The passage we're about to study is going to provide an opportunity to take a little bit of a a look into the inner life of the man Moses. Who was Moses, the man of God? We haven't actually talked about that yet. It's amazing. We've been studying this book, and we've talked a lot about Israel and their journeys and the history, and we've done a lot of deep theology. But here's what's going to happen. The text we're studying is going to end with a prayer that Moses is going to pray, and the prayer is just astounding. It's extremely intimate, and essentially what's going to happen is Moses is going to pray, and he's going he's to say to God, God, please, if there's any chance that you could let me go into the promised land, would you change your mind about that? And, and there's this prayer that it ends with. And what I, what I want to do is I want to I get you thinking a little bit about Moses, the man of prayer. I think it's going to be very encouraging. I, I, uh, last, at the last sermon, I had a lot of people say that was really important for me to reflect on my own prayer life and maybe how often I take it for granted. I don't know if you know this. Um, the Bible says some pretty astounding things about Moses. There's a place at the end of Deuteronomy where basically it says, after Moses, there was never another prophet even remotely like Moses. He was unique. His signs and wonders, the things he did, he was amazing. There's a place in the, in the book of Numbers where it says Moses was very meek. More than all people who were on the face of the earth, Moses was the most meek. Isn't that amazing? And isn't it, and I don't know if you know this, that Moses being the author of Numbers wrote that statement about himself, which is actually a little bit interesting, but you know, maybe it was an editor, hopefully it was an editor. But um, so, but of all, listen, of all the things the Bible says about Moses, by far the most amazing happens in the book of Exodus chapter 33. I'm gonna put the verse up in a minute, but there's this place in Exodus 33, and if you wanna go read it, you should. It describes how Moses used to go outside of the camp before they had built the tabernacle. He would go outside of the camp and he would put up a tent and he called it the tent of meeting. And anytime Moses wanted to spend time with God, he would pitch this tent outside of the camp. He would go out there and and Exodus says, every time Moses would go into the tent, the glory of God would fall. It was like a cloud that would fall in the tent and Moses would spend time with the living God in this tent, and then here's what it says, Exodus 33, verse 11, it says, thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. I want you to think about that. That is an astounding statement. Moses would go out, he would, he would put the tent up, the glory of God would fall, he would go, if you know anything about the glory of God, The Bible, the Old Testament teaches you cannot experience the glory of God without dying because it's so spectacular. This is before Christ. And here's Moses. He's he's allowed to enter in and it says God would speak to Moses the way a man would speak to his friend. 
like face to face. This is incredible. I was thinking about it all day yesterday and I kept thinking about my relationship with my twin brother. I have a twin brother, I don't know if you know this, and we're not identical, we're fraternal, but we look very much alike. So much so that you don't actually know if this is actually Adam's twin brother. No, I'm kidding. People have met my brother in town and it's beautifully awkward because they're like, he's being really passive and he's kind of ignoring me. But, but um, I, thought about, I thought about my relationship with my twin all week and I was reading this verse and thinking, There's, my, the way that Aaron and I interact is similar to this. It's really precious. Um, having a twin brother is a very unique experience and a lot of you don't know what I'm talking about, but I was thinking this week, there's a lot of benefits to having a twin. You always have a tennis partner, okay, first of all. There's always an extra set of clothes nearby if yours have problems, you know. My brother one time broke his wrist on prom day and he couldn't go to prom and so I took his tuxedo and took his date to prom. It was amazing. We did tell her that it was me, not Aaron. But the, the, but, but the most amazing thing about my brother is when we talk, I always have this feeling he just knows me. I call my brother at least twice a week. I call him when I have a victory. If something just goes amazing, I'll call Aaron. I'll, I'll say, I just want to tell you about this. And it's like he totally gets it. He's like, I get it. Or if I fall on my face and have a massive failure, the first person I want to call is my brother. And I was thinking about that and thinking, this is a lot like Moses. And think about that kind of a relationship. But this is a relationship with the living God. Now, here's the thing. Some of you are thinking, oh, if only I could have a a relationship like that with God. But I don't know if you know this. I'm going to read the verse later. There's a verse in the New Testament that basically says that Moses would be jealous of the relationship that you have with God because you are on this side of the cross and you have the Holy Spirit and Moses would give anything to switch places with you. And I have a feeling that many of you don't realize that. And that's why I'm really anxious to preach this message today. Here's my thesis. All of the things about Moses that we admire are not things that are actually about Moses. All of the things about, a Mo- uh, all the things about Moses that are amazing happened in his life because of his face time with the living God. And that means that all the things about Moses that we admire could be true about you. And God wants them to be true about you. And so I'm glad you're here today. And what I want to do this morning, I'm going to to read to you now Deuteronomy. Turn there with me and we're going to start in verse 12. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you the three qualities that Moses developed through really deep, intimate prayer with the living God which is an invitation in your life. Here's quality number one. I'll put it on the screen so you can think about this with me. In prayer, Moses adopted God's highly countercultural view of community, of the people of God. The people of Israel were God's people and Moses had a very unique 
and very high view about that people. And I think he got it in prayer with the living God. Now I'm gonna show it to you. Look at verses 12 to 17. This is now a historical event that you need to understand in order to get what Moses is gonna say next. And what's happening here is Moses starts dividing up the land that they have conquered from last Sunday. Here's what it says, verse 12. When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at Aroer, which is on the edge of the Valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. Okay, so do you see those names, the Reubenites and the Gadites? That's two of the 12 tribes of Israel. There's Levi, there's Reuben, there's Simeon, there's Naphtali, there's Joseph, there's Benjamin, and then there's Gad and Reuben and, and others. What happens is after they defeat the two kings, which we talked about last Sunday, these two tribes come to Moses and they say, can we actually have the land on the eastern side of the Jordan because we have a lot of flocks and this is a perfect place for grazing. And Moses says, okay. So he divides up part of the land. He gives part of the land to the people of Gad, part of the land to the people of Reuben. And now we're gonna see he gives part of the land to what's called the half tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh is Joseph's lineage. So that's what happens, verse 13. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is all the region of Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joseph's descendants. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of Rephaim. Jair, the Manasite, took all the region of Argob, that's up north, that is Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Machathites, and he called the villages after his own name. Harvath Jair, as it is to this day. To Makir, who's another Manasite, I gave Gilead. And to the Reubenites, now he's back to Reuben and Gad, I gave the territory from Gilead as far as the valley of the Arnon, with the middle of the valley as a border, as far over as the river Jabbok, the border of the Ammonites. The Arabah also with the Jordan is the border from Chinnereth as far as the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, under the, the slopes of Pisgah on the east. It's very interesting stuff. And you all know exactly what he's talking about, right? You don't worry about it. You don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. Here's what's happening. This is the only thing you need to realize. Two and a half of the 12 tribes of Israel now have their land. And the reason why that's a significant historical note is that the people of Israel are still poised on the eastern side of the Jordan. They've not gone over the Jordan to take possession of the promised land, but two and a half of their tribes have their land. And what this does is it's going to raise a very interesting question about how the, the tribes of Israel view their community, their solidarity one to another. Did the people of Israel elevate nation over tribe or was it tribe first, nation second? Because if it was tribe first, Gad and Reuben and the half tribe of Manasseh could easily say, we've got our land, you guys are on your own. We're not going over to the Jordan now. We're, we're, like, we're settled and we're good. And what we're gonna discover is Moses has some very strong opinions about this. 
They're convictions that he formed because he was a man of prayer. He had a very unique view about the people of God. And I wonder if we share his view. Look at verse 18. So I commanded you, that's now he's talking to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. I commanded you at that time saying, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Look at that sentence. That is amazing. There's a truth hiding in there. He says, you've got your land, you're settled, great. Now here's what's gonna happen. The rest of your people are crossing over the Jordan and you know what's gonna happen? All of your warriors are going in front. Talk about solidarity among the people of God. They're going in front and they're gonna lead the way. Only your wives, the little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I've given you. Until Yahweh gives you gives rest to your brothers as to you, and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. And the phrase that scholars use, it's in every commentary. Here's the phrase they use. Corporate solidarity. Here's what it means. This is very countercultural in this day. In, the, in, the, in this ancient world, it was tribe over everything, but the people of Israel were different and they were different because of a core value that started with God. And the core value was this, your identity as a people, the, the nation of God, your identity draws you together in a kind of unity that causes you to have a love for your sisters and brothers that's more important to you than even your own personal agenda or the tribe of your or the agenda of your own tribe. You elevate the good of your brothers and sisters above that. Moses says, this is the kind of people we're gonna be. And so Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, you're going with us. You're going over. The amazing thing about this is that this idea gets picked up in the New Testament. The, the whole idea of like an inextricable bond one to another within the people of God. The New Testament writers talked like that about the global church. I don't know if you know this. They would describe the church globally as the new Israel. And they would use phrases from the Old Testament to describe new covenant Christians. We are, um, we are priests. We are chosen. We're holy ones. That's, that's Israel talk. And in the New Testament, Paul and Peter would say, that's now the global church. And Peter has this amazing passage where he calls the believers, he calls Christians the priesthood of believers and they're like living stones, each one, grafted into a wall that becomes the new people of God, a new temple. And then Peter says, don't you realize that means you, are, you, have, you share a bond with other believers and it doesn't matter what their ethnicity is. It doesn't matter where they live. It doesn't matter what language they speak. It doesn't matter what tribe they're a part of. You share solidarity with them. I've been in worship services in Egypt I remember worshiping Jesus in Egypt with Christians. 
sitting next to people who I don't know their language, I don't know their culture, I don't eat the same food that they eat. And I remember worshiping thinking, I feel so connected with these people on my left and my, I feel more connected to them than I feel with many of the people in my own city. I've had lunch in Nazareth with Palestinian Christians. And I remember sitting at a table with Palestinians who love Jesus and realizing I share more in common with these brothers than I share with people in my own community. I'll spend eternity with them. It's astounding. And you're thinking, well, why is pastor driving this home? I'll tell you why I'm driving this home. That is why, as a church, we care so deeply about our international partnerships. That's why we devote countless resources to partner with the church in Rwanda. That's why we care about Nopum, our friend and our brother in Myanmar. His, I don't know if you know, in Myanmar right now, Christians are being persecuted and Nopum is fighting, you know, fighting to spread the gospel. Our elders on Tuesday spent the day fasting and praying for our global partnerships. And we were asking the Lord, Lord, show us how you want us to use our resources. And we came away convinced we, we need to devote more resources to Nopum. We need to get more involved in Rwanda. So we're gonna, we're in a step of faith. We're gonna get generous and we're gonna help plant another church in Rwanda. I'll, we'll be telling you more about that in November. But you might be wondering, well, why, why do we care about these partnerships? Because people all over the globe are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? This is why in our city, we, we maintain relationships with other churches and we lock arms with them and we avoid all the competitive stuff, you know, that stuff, there's not, there's not time for that. I have relationships with all these pastors of other churches, wonderful churches, and we're doing things together. Now, every time I'm with them, I remind them that River West is the best church in the city. Okay, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, I tell them it's so beautiful that we, that, that we all, and Christopher's a part of this and our other pastors, we're locking arms with other churches. Why? Solidarity in the body of Christ. And now, most importantly, you. I'm gonna to talk to you in your heart. This is why every Sunday when I'm up here, I drive home over and over and over again. Come to church not looking for your own personal fulfillment. I love you so much, but the body of Christ matters more than your own needs or agenda. Amen. I hope you know I'm, I'm saying that because I love you. You are here. Yes, you're here because God loves you and wants to minister to you. But have you ever thought about the fact that you might be here because someone else needs to be cared for by you? And you might actually be here as a divine appointment to love someone, take them to lunch, see them across the room and recognize they're hurting, they're broken, they don't feel welcome. God may have put you here to minister to that sister or brother and express solidarity in the body of Jesus. And Moses learned that in prayer. I believe it with all my heart. It's amazing, if you, if you took your Bible and you went to the New Testament and you went to all the different prayers that Paul or Peter pray and you prayed them, 
One of the things you would notice is, so you go to Ephesians 1, go to Colossians, go to Philippians, go to 1 Peter, and find a prayer and pray it. Here's what you would realize. I have not prayed for myself one time. I, the entire time I spent praying for other believers, praying for the church, praying that God would work in people's lives. There's something so life-giving about that way of praying. Try it, check it out, test it. I think Moses sat in God's presence and God said, Moses, I have a view of community that's so different than the way the world thinks about it. Number two, here's the second trait. I'll put this up. In prayer, Moses learned that the way you stir up courage in someone's life is by keeping alive the memory of what God has already done. That's how you do it. He's gonna do it in, jo- in Joshua in just a minute. I'm gonna show it to you, but I, I wanna believe that up and have you think about this. The way that you stir up courage in someone's life is by keeping alive the memory of all that God has done. And Moses did this all the time. The people, when they crossed the Red Sea, got part of the Red Sea and they got to the other side, what is the very first thing that Moses did? Exodus 15, they sang a song where they declared, I'll sing to the Lord for he's triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider, he's thrown into the sea. (laughs) And Moses did this all the time. He just stirred it up. Now look what he says to Joshua, verse 21. I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you're crossing. You shall not fear them for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. It says in verse 21, it says, and I commanded Joshua. And then what you're, what you're waiting for is a command. But what's amazing is you don't really get a command. What you really get is a doctrine of God. Moses says, I'm gonna encourage you, Joshua. I'm gonna command you. And here's what I want you to know. Never forget what God just did. Don't forget it. Is that how you encourage people in your life? It's so fascinating. Moses, here's what he says. He says, hey, Joshua, God's past mighty works, those are not one-offs. Those are not accidents in history. Those moments... They're meant as a declaration of God's constant character. They're not just something God has done. Those things represent something that's inherent about God's character. Those are about who God is. When God God shows up and parts a Red Sea, that's not just a past event. That becomes something God's gonna do in the future. He's gonna take his people through the waters of baptism. When God redeems people out of slavery in Egypt, Moses says, that's not just a one-off event. That's something about God's character. God is the redeemer who rescues people out of the bondage of slavery and evil. When God provides bread from heaven, that's not a one-time event. That's who God is. God is the one who sends the bread of heaven, Jesus Christ, the living word of God. And Moses said, Joshua, this is why you can be encouraged. The serpent slayer, the serpent king slayer, he's going with you into the promised land. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. It's amazing. Moses could have said so many things to Joshua. 
He could have said, Joshua, buddy, you got this. I mean, look at you. You are ripped. You're like, you're built like a brick bomb shelter. Joshua, look at you. You know, he didn't say that. He could have said, Joshua, you are a brilliant military strategist. You have nothing to worry about. He didn't say that. He said, Joshua, there's one reason and one reason only that you don't have to be afraid. It's got nothing to do with your resume. It's got nothing to do with your physique. It's got nothing to do with your strategy. The reason you don't have to be afraid is because the God of the universe is going with you. Amen. And here's the question. Here's the question. Somebody comes to you in your life and you love them. They're a sister or brother in Christ and they're deeply discouraged. How do you encourage them? Do you tell them, you're amazing, you're smart, people like you, here's a mirror, look into it and and give yourself compliments. No, you don't do that. What do you say to them? You say, God loves you and think about what God's done in your past. Think about the God that we serve. Think about what he's done. Here's, I'll read one Psalm so you can see, this is all over the Bible. This is Psalm 105. Notice this. Psalm 105, I'll just put the words up on the screen. Well, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. Look at this. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him. Tell of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that God has done. How do you encourage people? How do we encourage people here? We keep stirring up the memory of who God is and what he's done. And so look back on your life, folks. Think about the way Jesus has been faithful, the way Jesus protected you, the way Jesus has saved you and draw courage from that. Good? Amen? Okay, here's the final one. I'll take a little bit more time on this, but here's the third Uh, characteristic. In prayer, I want you to think about this. Moses cultivated both boldness to ask for amazing things, but also the humility to accept no for an answer. And the reality is we do need both. I mean, just think about those two words, boldness and humility. I want to ask you, Would you use those words to describe your prayer life right now? Boldness, boldness to ask God for amazing things and the humility to accept no when that's his answer. Because sometimes it is. So now the prayer, look at this, Deuteronomy 3, verse 23. I pleaded with the Lord at that time. I pleaded, I be- the, the, the Hebrew word is I begged. He's begging God. It's so intimate. I begged God at that time, oh Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land. Isn't that so amazing? Please, God, I want to see the promised land. Let me see the land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you. I'll talk about that in a moment. 
The Lord was angry with me and he would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Moses, drop it, all right? Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes, but you're not going over the Jordan. That is a precious moment, folks. Think about the tenderness of Moses. He, he, he knew that God cared for him. He knew God's character. He said, God, please. And God says, I'm gonna say no on this one, Moses. I'm gonna say no. This morning, or on Monday when I was um, reading that verse, here I, I grabbed my, my notepad and this is what I wrote down. I thought about Moses and his prayer. I, I wrote down, right theology, wrong request. Right theology, but the wrong request. His view of God is impeccable. Look at verse 24. He says, God, I know for a fact that you could do even greater things than I've already seen. That statement is crazy, by the way. Think what Moses saw. And he's like, I have a feeling I'm go- I could see even more than what you've already done. Amazing. Right theology. Look at the way he addresses God. You see the phrase in verse 24? He says, he, just, he says, oh Lord God, that, um, man, ESV gets this wrong because in that phrase is the personal name of God, which is usually translated uppercase L-O-R-D. It's, it's basically Yahweh. It's Adonai Yahweh. So it's the personal name of God and it's a title for God that describes his absolute sovereignty. It really should be sovereign Lord. He says, sovereign Lord, there's no God like you. And then he, what does he call himself? He says, I'm your servant. You see that? Here's what I want you to remember. Anytime there's a prayer happening, there's two people involved. There's a sovereign Lord and there's a servant. And the key is you and I have to make sure we're crystal clear on which one of those two people we think we are. (laughs) Wait a minute. (laughs) Am I the sovereign Lord of my universe right now? Or am I the servant of a God who's on the throne of heaven? Because that's gonna change the way you pray. And that's gonna protect you in moments where God in his sovereignty needs to say, I know you really want this, but right now this is not best for you. One of the things that breaks my heart more than anything as a pastor is when I hear that people have walked away from faith because their prayers weren't answered. Now think about that for a minute. I know there's heartache. I know there's problems in our world. But what would cause us to think, if God doesn't answer my prayer, he must not be good. Unless I thought for some reason, I know for a fact that what I'm asking God, there's no possible reason why God would not answer this prayer. But wait a minute, I'm not God. I'm the servant in this interaction. Think about it like this. Do you think Moses was disappointed in that moment when God said, I'm not gonna let you go over? Okay, folks, Moses was heartbroken. I promise you. I bet he wept bitterly. I bet he left that moment so 
discouraged. But here's the thing. He didn't turn his back on God. He followed God as faithfully as he ever had. Even when God said no. So important. But it is jarring. I want to talk about it more for just a minute. Why? You, you read it and you go, why, why not let Moses go into the promised land? And you know who else it was drawing for? The people of Israel. Imagine the people of Israel going, you know, imagine the talk around camp. Did you hear Moses is not going into the promised land? <laughs> right? People were shocked by this. And so let me pause. There's, I think, an opportunity here for a little bit of theological reflection. What could be some of the reasons why God would say no to this? And I can think of four. If you want to write these down, you can. But I, th- I think there's at least four reasons why God might say, you know what? Not this time. Reason number one, it might have been best for Moses. This might have been the best thing for Moses, believe it or not. Because it placed a limit on the scope of his earthly leadership. Now think about this. Leaders can accomplish amazing things for God but they are not God. And sometimes the most important thing God can do is remind leaders what you're doing is significant, but you are not God. Leaders need that reminder. I'm sure Moses thought, I'm very qualified to do this, Lord. Like, I can help the people. This is going to be challenging. I can help them get settled. And probably in his own wisdom, he thought, there can't be a possible reason why God would not want me to be the one to lead him over. But here's the thing. Moses is not omniscient. But God is. And it's very possible God knew this would not be best for you, Moses. Not only that... I think it was very instructive for the people of Israel. And here's what I mean. I think it was a reminder to the people of Israel, God takes sin seriously. It matters. If, we, if we're stubborn and hard-hearted towards God, that matters. Because notice, Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land because he did something that was so stubborn that God said, okay, you're not going into the promised land. Uh, The story, I won't go into all the details. Many of you know the story, but basically um, the people have been complaining about a lack of water. Moses goes into the presence of God. God says, take your staff, go out. There's a rock, speak to the rock and water will flow. And something goes down. There's a lot of debate about what Moses did that was sinful, but whatever Moses did, some people think he struck the rock. Some people think he, was, he struck it twice. I think it was a heart problem. I think he was bitter and angry. And whatever Moses did in that moment, he, he diminished the righteousness of God in front of the people. And God said, you know what? That's a big deal. You're not going into the promised land. And I think it was a reminder for the people of Israel, God God's holy. We're following a holy God. This matters. So it might have been best for Moses. It was instructive for the people. But think about this. I bet this was about Joshua and his future leadership. So this was critical for Joshua to succeed as a leader. 
He notices the very next thing Moses does, verse 28, he charges Joshua. It's always like, you're not going in, encourage Joshua. So verse 28, he charges him. And I think what's happening here is God's saying, Moses, you were my leader to bring the people through the wilderness, but you're not gonna be the leader that's gonna take them into the land. That is a job for Joshua. And think about how difficult it would have been for Joshua if Moses was always there. I mean, this guy was like revered, right? Sometimes uh, leaders, when you've served faithfully and you hand, over the, you hand over the baton to another leader, it can be really difficult to actually let go and let that new leader lead. It's very, it can be a difficult thing. When I was doing ministry in Eugene, I had launched a Young Life Club at one school and there wasn't a Young Life Club at another school and I, I left that ministry in the hands of a really amazing young leader and then I went and started a new club and that young leader immediately changed something really big that I had started and I was like, what the heck, man? You know, what are you thinking? I mean, and it ended up being incredible. It was exactly what God wanted for that moment. But that was hard for me. These are the dynamics of human leadership. Imagine what it would have been like for Joshua to be leading the people and all the while Moses is there and they could always go, hey Moses, what do you think about what Joshua is doing right now? That would have been highly detrimental to his ability to lead. And then finally, and this is the most important one, it just wasn't God's will. This was not God's will for Moses. So let's be honest, folks. We often think, if I can't think of a reason why God would not do this, there must not be a reason, (laughs) right? If I can't think of a reason why God wouldn't heal this, or if I can't think of a reason why God wouldn't give me this, or God wouldn't stop this, well, there must not be a reason. How arrogant are we that we think we know all of the different implications of any particular decision that God would make I'm not God, I'm the servant in this relationship. And sometimes God says no, and I promise you, he's got really good reasons. And so be encouraged in your prayer life. Should you ask boldly for stuff? Absolutely. Today, I want you to go home, I want you to go into your room, close the door and pray and pour out your heart to God like Moses and ask him for the moon and maintain humility that sometimes he might say no. Amen? Amen? Okay, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna have the worship team come up and now I'm gonna tell you why Moses would give anything to trade places with you and have your access to God. And the reason I'm gonna preach this right now is because I know for a fact many of you do not believe this about your relationship with Jesus, but you need to. Here's the verse, 2 Corinthians 3. Write it down, read it later. I'm just gonna read it over you right now. Here's what Paul said. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses. Now think about that sentence. (laughs) We are very bold, not like Moses. We are more bold in our relationship with God than Moses even was. That statement is radical. 
Why? Well, Moses would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But here's the thing, verse 16. When a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all with an unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who's the spirit. Here's what I want to say to you. Right up until the moment when you surrender your life to Jesus and repent of your sins and turn to Christ, right up until that moment, you have a veil over your eyes, over your heart, over your life. You're not able to see the full glory of Christ. You're not able to see the wisdom of God. You're not able to appreciate all the truth of the gospel. But here's the good news. The moment you humble your heart and turn in faith to Jesus, a bunch of really miraculous things begin happening. And I want them for many of you this morning. And one of them is God takes away a veil. He softens human hearts. He'll take a hardened heart. He'll replace it with a soft heart. He'll remove a veil. And suddenly you will be able to see the actual glory of Jesus. And folks, it's the greatest thing that could ever happen to you. And my prayer, because I know for a fact that some of you, you're in church, but you've not surrendered your life to Jesus. In fact, for some reason, you've got him at a distance and he's, he's calling you, let go, turn to me, see what I will do in your life. It will be the greatest thing you ever do. Turn to the Lord Jesus this morning. In fact, I'm gonna pray for that right now. Will you bow your heads? Oh, heavenly father, Moses would trade places with us to have the relationship that we have with you. What a statement. What a truth. For many here, Lord, we've enjoyed that intimacy. For many, we've taken it for granted. I know you're stirring in hearts some who have not spent time in prayer like we, we know we, we can and should inspire us, Lord, to go to the closet, go to the desk, go to the, go to the basement, go to the park, go to the coffee shop and open our Bible and spend time with the living God. But also I know, Lord, right now, in this place, in this moment, there are some who, they have you at a distance. Jesus, they're holding you at bay. 
And if that's you, if I'm describing you, can I just encourage you, God loves you so much. You're not here by accident. He has an agenda for your life today to turn to Jesus. Just turn to Jesus this morning. Stop running, stop fighting, stop, stop delaying, stop turning your back. Turn to Jesus and see what God will do in your life. It's a simple prayer. You can pray it right now. Lord God, I believe what I'm hearing. I believe what I'm hearing about Jesus. I believe what I'm hearing about my sin. And I believe that Jesus died on a cross for my sin and rose again in power. I believe and I surrender control to him today. Just pray that prayer this morning and see what God will do. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. amen.